Welcome to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast was created by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund as part of our ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we bring you live interviews from the floor of the MoCA Festival here in New York City. These interviews were conducted by CBLDF Executive Director Charles Brownstein over the weekend of April 5th and 6th, 2014, uh, on the floor of the festival, so there's a little bit of crowd noise, but hopefully that just adds to the festive atmosphere of the interviews. The weekend itself was hosted by the Society of Illustrators. The festival is a fundraiser for the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art, and the CBLDF had the pleasure of hosting the special guests this year in our booth, where we had a chance to speak to them a little bit in between signing books and talking to their fans, and we appreciate them taking the time to, uh, to answer some questions. The first interview is with Howard Cruz, the cartoonist behind the anthology Gay Comics and his uh, groundbreaking graphic novel, Stuck Rubber Baby. He talks a little bit about the early days of LGBT comics and uh, some of his early work in that field. Next is Fiona Staples, who I would call a, a rising star, but but that star is, is risen. She is a uh, bona fide superstar currently um, due to her work uh, primarily in Saga with Brian K. Vaughn. And after that is Robert Williams, who is a legendary cartoonist. And this interview is primarily about his association with Zap Number no. 4, which, if you are a censorship aficionado, you know to be a, a landmark work in the history of, of comics. So, without too much more introduction, I will uh, turn the recording over to Charles Brownstein, who recorded these live on the floor, and I uh, hope you enjoy them. This is Charles Brownstein at MOCA, uh, and talking to Howard Cruz. Howard is a pioneer in comics, both as a graphic novelist and as the creator of the Gay Comics Anthology, uh, which grew out of his work as an underground cartoonist. And today I'd like to ask Howard about... Um, what some of the challenges were in content that you faced from the very beginnings of making underground comics? Well, underground comics had several years under their belt uh, when I managed to begin finding my way into them. And so the, the template had been set of basically being, because uh, they were only sold to adults, of, of being totally uncensored and uh, anything in the mind topic of any underground cartoonist uh, could be could be put in there and uh, you know from my standpoint you know as a budding cartoonist uh, my first interest was in simply getting to express myself but there was because I was gay there was always the issue of at what point might I introduce my you know gay experiences into my work and it, I it took a few years to arrive at that point because I didn't want to simply get myself typecast from the word go. Um, but eventually, I, I always knew that I was going to be open about being gay in my work, and that I had the opportunity to do that in 1979 when Dennis Kitchen asked me if I would edit this projected new series, Gay Comics. And 
again, that was a nice, natural way to come out of the closet professionally. I'd been out of the closet personally for years, but professionally, uh, without it seeming to be a confession, mm -hmm. it was affirmative. We're now going to do something affirmative, and I'm, I'm in a position to be the editor because I'm gay. Mm -hmm. So that was the, that was, I stepped into that field, and of course I was concerned since I wanted to have a broad-based cartooning career, uh, both in the mainstream as an illustrator and also uh, in comics as a person who could comment on you know, many different topics, not just one, I was worried that it might hobble my career to be known as a gay person and to do work gay uh, comics with gay content. But fortunately, I guess enough momentum had been established in my career that it didn't really uh, hurt my career, and in many ways it helped it because, uh, frankly, you know, being honest in your work uh, jacks up the voltage mm -hmm. inherently. Mm -hmm. um, did you face issues um, in terms of retailers or printers, um, you know, when you were starting to create the Gay Comics Anthology? Well, the, um, in those days, of course, this was all before the internet, and it was all before Amazon, so there were many small specialized bookstores, mm -hmm. particularly there were gay and lesbian bookstores uh, scattered around the country, and these were the main avenues uh, for selling gay comics at the beginning. Some uh, general uh, comic stores were run by people who were adventurous enough to to carry them, but uh, you know, many didn't. But fortunately, there was this infrastructure uh, of gay bookstores, uh, and so that that helped the series uh, find readers who, you know, were its natural constituency. Did you, in terms of uh, placing your editorial work um, or creating um, your own authorial work, struggle with either external censorship or self-censorship? Well. You know, basically in underground comics, I learned, you know, to not self-censor. Right. Um, as I began doing work in, uh, you know, in other media that were more mainstream, you know, you're, um, an intelligent person knows that uh, where the boundaries are, and most editors would also know uh, and let you know if you were anywhere near stepping over them. Um, and that's okay because one doesn't have to totally let everything hang out all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I would, you know, the biggest issue was when I had the opportunity to do my graphic novel, Stuck with a Baby, uh, for a mainstream company like DC Comics, mm -hmm. even though I was doing it for uh, a branch of the company that was specifically devoted to doing experimental, edgy uh, stuff. But we discussed, you know, what needed to be there for me to be true to you know, my constituency and to my history as an artist, namely that it would have gay content and wouldn't be embarrassed to do that, but also, um, and, and that would include gay sex, but on the other hand, I wasn't going to be as graphic in the gay sex as I could in other comic books because Stuck With a Baby is, you know, sold without restrictions uh, to any age. It's more appropriate for grown-ups because the issues in it are subtle ones that uh, a child would not understand anyway. But I, uh, you know, we found an accommodation that allowed me to be 
just about as creatively free as it was in undergrounds. Uh, and I willingly accepted some of the restrictions that go with selling a book in places that where kids can buy it. Stuck Up Your Baby is interesting on a variety of levels. Um, one of the levels you're touching on here is, I think, what was it, 1996? Was it published? Uh, uh, well, it was published in 95. 95. And so, you know, that's a moment where there really wasn't the graphic novel economy we have today. Um, it's a moment where DC Comics, you know, financed something that was pretty far abreast from their skill set. Um, it's a remarkable project that it came to exist at all. Could you comment on how that happens? Well, um, there was a guy uh, named Mark Nevelo who was the original uh, editor of this uh, experimental branch of DC called Piranha Press. And Mark, uh, you know, his mission was to break down some of these barriers, and he was totally open to letting me uh, do this book uh, and letting me do it my way. In many of the ways, I created it the way I did underground comics, and then I, um, I told him if I was going to do a graphic novel, they couldn't expect me to follow the normal procedure at DC because, for example, when I'm drawing comic book pages, I never draw them completely in pencil where anyone else could look at them and approve them or disapprove them. Uh, I will ink uh, panel to completion, you know, on one page and the rest of it's black, and we'll do another panel on another page, and I'll gradually build the, build the set of pages. And so I said, there's really no way you can have the kind of oversight you're used to. So I said, if you uh, if you look at my past work and make the judgment that I'm a professional with taste who's not going to, you know, be a wild person, um, then uh, then you should go with it. But if you are worried about that, then don't. But on the other hand, it was a longer project than I'd ever done, and so I agreed to do something I had never done in Underground Comics, which was to prepare a complete working script before I started drawing that they could look at. And the understanding was that he would critique my script uh, and suggest changes, but that he could not dictate changes. Uh, but I would consider his changes uh, in good faith. And in point of fact, he made some suggestions that were good suggestions, good editorial suggestions. Um, and uh, I was caught a little off guard when about six months after I started drawing, um, he left the company. And, of course, as any author would feel, if his editor leaves the company, you worry that yours is going to be an orphan project. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the follow-up editor of uh, Piranha Press, which quickly became Paradox Press, uh, was uh, Andy Helfer. Mm -hmm. And Andy basically honored all of the commitments that Mark had made about my creative freedom. And uh, so it didn't make a difference. And, and Bronwyn, uh, Bronwyn Tiger was the editor I dealt with more than Andy mm -hmm. uh, with the book, but she also, I would bring in every chapter, and it was understood that I might well change things from the working draft um, as I realized better ways to do things, uh, and that that was my normal way of working. But uh, And they so they understood that I might come in with a finished chapter uh, that had scenes in it that they had never seen before, or didn't have scenes that they expected to be there. Um, but, you know, they uh, they went with that in, in, in a 
way that I really appreciate. We're here at MoCA, and there's a thriving generation of cartoonists that are exhibiting here uh, with their work, and among that generation of cartoonists, there seems to be a thriving queer comic scene. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on your interactions with that community and kind of just your own impressions as one of the pioneers in that space to see how this next generation is taking up the mantle? Well, when I was starting out, and particularly when I was deciding to be openly gay professionally, uh, I was highly aware that I didn't have a role model. There was nobody out there who was cartooning, who was openly gay, and who had access to the mainstream in any way. There were some uh, gay cartoonists who did things in, and I'm, I'm, they did things in gay publications. Um, and of course, the, there were some uh, lesbian cartoonists who had preceded me in underground comic books, but underground comic books were also a fringe medium as far as the general public was concerned. Uh, so I, uh, one of the things that I hoped to do, um, and in, you know, with gay comics, was to create a vehicle for uh, younger cartoonists who were on the fence about whether they dared be out uh, to see, to let them see that, oh, so Howard Cruz is doing this and he still has a career and uh, uh, Roberta Gregory is doing this and uh, Mary Wins is doing this and various people. It can happen. And uh, so... Basically, what you see with the queer, you know, queer comics uh, crowd of younger people now, who just are all over the place, is the fulfillment of that dream. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. Somebody had to break that barrier, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, you know, excited to have had that opportunity. Thank you. That's as good a stopping point. Okay. <laughs> So this is Charles Brownstein at MoCA talking to Fiona Staples. Hi, Charles. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Saga is one of the more popular comics right now, and you're dealing with a wide range of human behaviors. You're dealing with a wide range of what people really do, and sometimes that takes you into some explicit territory. So I'd like to ask you your thoughts about the freedom that you experience um, exploring with Saga and any concerns about um, about censorship relating to it? Sure. Um, well, first of all, Saga is a creator-owned series published by Image Comics. And uh, Image has been wonderful to work with. They give us complete freedom. And so far, they've never told us that there's anything that we can't do. <laughs> they've been completely open to anything that... Um, that the writer Brian and I want to have in our book. Um, there are no content restrictions or even guidelines in <laughs> Image Comics. So, yeah, like I said, we have complete freedom. And uh, Asaka is a story with a large scope. Um, it follows a, a young family and their, you know, their their new baby. And uh, as the years go on, we're going to watch this baby grow up. So. It's a story about life and all facets of life, including sex and birth and death and sometimes graphic violence. So there's there's no subject that we really shy away from. Um, we've ended up showing all kinds of things, explicit violence and explicit sex. Um, and I feel that it's it's all just part of the story, you know, just like it's part of life. <laughs> right. Is it peculiar that... Uh 
the explicit sexuality seems to be where some of the objections have occurred. Yeah, uh, there haven't been any objections to the violence so far, even though sometimes it's, uh, you know, I consider it cartoonishly violent. There's a, I mean, there's, there's a panel showing a guy clapping an alien dude's head between his hands and smashing it, and then, like, blood and brain matter flying everywhere, <laughs> which to me is almost like Looney Tunes level mm-hmm. silly violence. <laughs> no, one, no one has really objected to that. And we have had, well, but we, well, what I attempt to do are sort of more realistic, uh, genuine representations of, of sex. And, um, yeah, that's gotten us into a little bit of trouble in the past. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the... You're talking about the genuine representations of sex. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your philosophy of developing that storytelling and what it is that you try to put in there. And I guess, what what do you mean by genuine? Uh, Well, I personally just try to treat it um, in a realistic way, something that feels real and honest to me. And uh, it's not there just to be titillating, even though sometimes if it is a little titillating, that's fine. <laughs> but, um, you know, we don't want it to be too gratuitous. We want it to fit with the story, and we want it to fit with the characters that we spent all this time creating. We don't want the sex scenes to suddenly feel like you're reading a different comic or a different genre, because it's just a it's just a part of their lives. Um, so that's what I mean when I say uh, honest. I want it to feel true to the characters and true to the story. So there have been some controversies regarding Saga um, that the CBLDF has covered, um, specifically the comicsology um, issue uh, in the past. What's your response as the creator of these images to these sorts of censorship uh, occurrences and manifestations? Uh, well, uh, Brian and I sort of agreed that it's not going to change what we do. We're just going to continue making the comic that we want to make. Which is why we, which is what we set out to do with Saga from the beginning, make something that we like, <laughs> um, without following anyone else's guidelines or having anyone's rules imposed on us. So we're just going to continue to do what we do and um, hope for retailer support if we can get it. And so far, retailers have been very supportive and really wonderful. So when you're when you're putting in this genuine approach to depicting how people behave, what are your thoughts about the work being misconstrued? I don't know if the work is being misconstrued, so it's just, just not accepted. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't think they misunderstand what we're trying to do, and they just don't like what we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're absolutely free to disagree with our book or, you know, not buy it, but I don't know. I think sometimes, sometimes the rules, especially selling online on Apple devices, the, the guidelines are very unclear about what they will or won't accept. So, um, you know, you never really know if an issue of Saga is going to get through and be sold in, in the App Store or not. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a guessing game. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we're not going to uh, alter our comment to try to fit in some arbitrary guidelines that we don't even fully understand. (laughs) As a working artist who's been affected, how would you like to see the marketplace change? Um, How would it be easier for you to participate in the marketplace? What kind of guidelines would you like to see? Uh, 
Well, I would like to see them open up the store to all kinds of books, regardless of what the content is, and just ask for a, a clear label, you know, a rating on it. Not that you have self-censorship issues, but sometimes when you're called upon to draw something, um, there's a moment of pause, and I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Sometimes when I'm drawing, I wonder how, you know, how it will be received, but I don't get too caught up in it, to be honest. Uh, when I'm drawing, I'm not really thinking too much about the audience or even about the readers. I'm mostly, I mean, Brian is my audience when I'm drawing with that. <laughs> because it's his script that I'm reading and it's like based on, on his words. So, so yeah, yeah, he's really my only audience, I think. And I mostly, um, I'm mostly focused on if, if the work is like true to his story and if we're sort of in sync with what we're trying to get across. Then afterwards, when it comes out, if it's something very weird or gross or explicit, I wonder if people are going to like it. But right then, it's too late. So right. <laughs> I've already drawn it. <laughs> Last question. As the exchanges that we've been seeing in the line illustrate, there's a lot of young creators looking up to you right now. And so describe for me what that feels like and what you would recommend to people that are coming up in their creative life. I guess to an artist that's sort of a, who's just starting to get work and find their footing, uh, my advice would be to choose your projects really carefully and choose your collaborators carefully. Um, just make sure you're working with someone that you trust, where there's a mutual respect, and make sure you're working on a story that you love. <laughs> like, a, you don't want to get stuck for you know a year or more doing something that you hate or work with someone that you're not really compatible with. I think as soon as you get to the point where you're able to start choosing your jobs, choose very carefully. And, you know, sometimes it's better to to just take a part-time job and do comics on the side rather than get stuck doing a comic that you hate and have working in comics become a really unpleasant experience. Sounds good. Thank you, Trina. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Milka today, and we're talking with uh, Robert Williams. Hey, Robert, thanks for talking to CBLDF. Uh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So, you are a contributor to the infamous Zap Number no. Four, which was the first comic book ever to be successfully prosecuted and convicted for obscenity. And I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the scene in those days and what the artists, how artists were aware of the issues in the work and what kinds of concerns you had about censorship back in that era? Uh, there were one or two pornographic illegal publications around the period of Zap. I, I, I can't remember the titles of them. Zap was the first official comic
like uh, 1965. It's like 1955. The girly magazines are originally kind of set the standard for what could what set, could set on the newsstands. You could have Oriolas and Gluteal uh, Clefts. That's Aspirants. But it was Chance. It was Chance. Right. That dawned way back to the 19th century of what we call Saturday night art in bar rooms. Right. So the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s proliferated eight page Bibles. We've all seen eight page Bibles. All the Zap are really familiar with eight page Bibles. Some of them were mimeographed and some of them were rubber stamped. Mm -hmm. So when we started doing underground comics. We knew hand in the fire. We all knew that. Was none of us naive about that. Mm -hmm. So how did it affect the way you approached the art that you were creating for publication? Me, and I guess everyone may have a perception of prom was part of the drug culture mm -hmm. in the early 60s. So when the Vietnam War came about, it created an, an open form of sedition mm -hmm. with young people. It's not like now. Young people are, are, are real uh, indifferent and complacent now. You're in a period of real complacent young people. But in the late 60s, it was like an open revolution against youth, against a society by the youth. So, um, just an open hatred to authority, especially when the war cracked and started going through. We, we knew we were in danger, but we were heroes. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. and it was just like a cop between a rock and a hard place where this cultural matrix, you know, we're like doing this really filth, filthy, off-wall, imaginary stuff. A lot of people are going to get in trouble. Okay, now, Zap, the second publisher on Zap was the print mill. Right. With Ron Shanker. Okay. One day the FBI walks in there, gets Ron Shanker in the back room, and says, We're going to throw your ass in prison. What year was this, roughly? 69, I 69? So, yeah, okay. Maybe early 69. I'm not sure about that. But it was early on. So Ron Shanker, an old beatnik, hipster, they had the print man, the FBI coming there and says, this stuff's, this stuff's pornography that's been sold nationwide, you're going to go to prison. You're going to prison. So there was a, a young Latino working back there in shipping and receiving. Uh, he was, an, I think, maybe an illegal alien. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Named Bob Rita. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so Don Shanker just says, the company's yours. This guy's just a kid working at the company's yours. And walks out. <laughs> so anyway, things were coming down hard. 
Yeah. And I know, I'm not sure of the figures, but I know a lot of news dealers. Like, if you're working, the, some kid's working the counter at a bookstore, he's going to go to jail, see? Right. Not the guy that owns the bookstore. Right. Well, that was the first... Uh, so, like, like something like 150 people in New York and 75 in San Francisco, 75 in L.A., you know? And years later, in 77, I did this thing in uh, a, a, a pornographic magazine, a cartoon of a clown playing with a little girl, and the FBI moved in on that publication. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Finger was the name of it. Mm-hmm. And they threw all those people in prison. And there was an artist that did work besides me in there named Dan O'Bannon. You know who? Hey? Yeah, I know Dan O'Bannon. So Dan O'Bannon was doing these remarkable pencil drawings. The FBI came to Dan O'Bannon. They were talking about putting him in prison for a long time, see? You know, that's Dan O'Bannon that did uh, Alien, and, you know, he's a famous guy. And, uh, well, this emotionally crippled him, this deal. He, he developed a paranoia he took to the day he died, see? Let's, let's, <laughs> let's go back a little bit to the, um, the, the Zap 4 prosecution well, here in New York that stuck. Like, Well, we all were aware of it, mm-hmm. and we all knew that... Everything we drew, someone else was going to pay the price for it. You know, the, now, you have the details, and I don't have the, the, the exact details on it. But it, uh, it was a shockwave to us. You know, it was, a, it was a shot across the bow. But we'd already faced these things before. You know, and uh, the thing is, there was people had to have those comics. They had to have those comics. You know, and. The, the, the thing was, there was a couple of those cases where they, they didn't hold up in court. I, uh, I think they tried to get, they, they said Spain's story that he did had absolutely no social redeeming quality to it. It was Joe Blow who got a lot of trouble. So. But, uh, there, the, 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 the upshot of it was, it was like some of the courts just, it's like, how are you going to? Sexually get aroused with this stuff. Right. You know, this stuff is ridiculous. Right. You know? After the conviction in New York, did this change the way you guys approached your work at all? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no. Because when the stuff was originally created, we realized it might not have a, a, any more of a presence than eight page Bibles. You know? Eight-page Bibles of these filthy people that had rubber stamps. Right. People ate it up. Just ate it up. And then, you know, after the Vietnam War, and there was no longer a criticism of the government and uh, authorities, and, and young people kind of thought hippies were a, kind of a sad, phony thing, and that created punk rock, you know. And the punk rockers hated the hippies, not knowing they couldn't have been there if it wouldn't have been for the hippies. Right. The hippies wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the beatniks. Yeah, and the beatniks wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the, the lost generation of the First World War, you know. So but it, it had no effect. The, 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 the rest, it weighed on our conscience, but it had no effect. So by, the, by this time, Hustler had come out with showing anuses and right. all kind of stuff. The, 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 and it, as the underground comics developed, so did the, the uh, 
stag movie into pornography, the right. adult movie, you know. <laughs> and so the the printed matter thing kind of died out with the exception of watching for child porn and uh, it focused more on adult movies. So this year Fantagraphics is putting out the Zap uh, archival collection yeah. and Zap has gone on to be this monument in art history. So looking back as being a part of it, um, how do you reflect on that time and what it means today? Well, the sad thing is when you look at Zaps today, and they're still startling, they're still really startling and they're still off the wall. <laughs> But you don't, you don't, you're not back in that, in the late 60s when there was nothing like it. It, it was beyond flipped out. It was just a, an obvious display of uh, sociopathic psychosis. You know? uh, I, I, I don't know how old you are. I don't know when you saw your first zaps. But uh, I, I snuck into a store at the age of 13 and probably got kicked out. But, they, they, yeah. they were flipped. They, yeah, they, they were. Just, they were done by obviously intelligent, talented people, but they were just went against every folkway and mori in our culture. You know? But you don't. We're not in that time anymore. People are used to stuff being off the wall. Like those psychedelic posters that come out in '66. That stuff was so flipped out because if you're in advertising, everything in advertising and commercial art has got to be readable. And that, that, that was uh, monumental, but no one thinks anything about that now, you know? And that, that was during a graphic time that hated curly Q lettering and curly Q graphics, you know? But if you're not back at that time, I don't, I don't know. You know, like I've read the transcript in the New York case, and there's this generational rift that's on display. You know, they just really don't, are struggling with the content in a way that denies that there's any artistic sensibility in there because to admit that there was an artistic sensibility calls into question their core values. You know, that's really writ large in these cases, which is fascinating. Well, you know, the interesting thing, like you were talking about the complacency of this generation, and um, that's an interesting thing to see in the censorship space because I think that there's a certain take-it-for-granted that this material is protected. Yeah. But there's still people being prosecuted. Yeah, you, you, my generation opened the doors and, and got a hold of the government and got you where the police wouldn't stop you without probable cause. Now, all across the country, there's road stops checking for drunks. Right. And I talked to other artists and said, well, what about that stopping us all the time? And he says, well, we got to get the drunks off the street. It's like... The, the majority of the witchcraft trials were based on children, safety of children. The big, one of the big censorship challenges now are young people, readers, getting arrested for the comics and the drawings that they have on their devices. It's really scary to see people going after readers now. Well, you know, there's like a certain percentage of the populations that are like criminals. Criminals, you know, and then there's a certain population, certain percentage of the population that are predatory catchers of people. Right. You know, and it's a fine line between that criminal and that authority. Fine line. It's like these authority people have got to go around and catch people. Like, 
Or if you don't, then it's only going to get worse. You got to catch them now, you know. And you have to have them. You have to have the constabulary. You know, and the police pull you over. You better be a supplicant. You better be very humble. Young people will handle it. It's their future. We'll figure it out. I mean, you you go around, maybe not in this room, but out on that street, and you ask anyone if they ever heard of underground comics, and maybe one of them will say, underground comics? Oh, yeah, Crumb. I saw the Crumb movie. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, Crumb was very instrumental in starting underground comics, but it was obvious they were coming. Right. They were coming. You know, I just try to milk it for what I can get out of it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm caught in that vacuum between comics and fine art. It's an old man living on my memories. <laughs> So those are our interviews from the MoCA Arts Festival. We want to thank Howard Cruz, Fiona Staples, and Robert Williams for their time. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to continue the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and uh, clicking the donate button there on the front page. This podcast and all of our education program is made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation, and from the financial support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard uh, on this episode and in other episodes, please uh, please let us know. You can drop us a line at info at cbldf.org. That's info at charlie bravo lambda delta fox trot dot org. Uh, we appreciate your comments, and we appreciate hearing from you. And if it's something that you'd like us to mention on on the air, so to speak, uh, please let us know and we'll address your concerns or questions. So thank you very much for listening and thank you for your continued support.